may have to adjust the mic a little bit. We'll see. Because, again, we've got new mics set up here. And so I haven't, had to, I haven't had the ability to play the guitar and not have to try to find a microphone at the same time right now. So I enjoyed that today. It's a lot easier on me. Let me make a couple of, of adjustments here. Am I too loud out there? A little bit. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm working on that. But what about the loudness? We okay on the loudness? Everybody okay? Nobody's worried? Okay. Is that better? A little bit? Not? Yeah, it's going to have to be good enough for today. We'll have to work on it. On the perfection. We don't want to get it too good because then you'd expect it. And the one thing that's always funny to me is that Everybody, probably the most requested uh, thing that we have, that we do, is bonfire service. And so we don't want to do that too often because that's obviously our flesh talking because we enjoy it. So we'll, we don't want to do that too often. But I do enjoy getting together and kind of putting aside the, I appreciate the microphones. I appreciate the heating and the cooling. We have the building, the carpet now. I love everything about that. But I remember that our hearts um, really are what God's after. And that he's not really that interested in, in, our, in our perfection or everything being exactly just right. But that he's just looking for the simple. Amen? Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Um, praise the Lord. Verse 25 We'll look at, actually, um, we might as well read 23, 24, 25, just because it's good to get in our hearts the, these things, remember them. Um, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, I find this little passage right there, Interesting because Adam was speaking, if you think about it, Adam is speaking prophetically concerning marriage because this is a new concept. And so Adam talks about from the very beginning when this, when this happens, this union that God pulls woman out of man. And I'm not really preaching on this, but, but just an interesting thought that when, when this happens, Adam's first thought is this is so good that this is going to repeat over and over and over throughout all of time. This is, the, this is the way God made it. And we see very clearly, like I said last week, Adam and Eve, male and female, just two genders. That's it. No question. You can't be a Christian and believe anything other than that. Just period. You can't be a Christian and believe anything other than two genders. That's it. There's a lot of confusion with that in this world. But, um, so I want to get to this 25th verse. And they were both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in the weeds here. But um, I, w- I want to get you this, this thought. God created them. They were naked. They were unashamed. Now skip over to the third chapter and the sixth verse. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and also uh, gave unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now look, and the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons or tunics. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees 
of the garden. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. Jesus, give me the strength and the ability, God, to deliver what you've put in my heart, that we would be strengthened by it, Lord, that we would grow by your word, and we give you all the glory, and everybody say amen. amen. So I preached last time out of this chapter, and I'm seeing some things that I felt like we should kind of visit, and tonight, uh, this afternoon, I want to talk about a dynamic salvation is what I want to talk about, um, but we're going to get to this text here in a minute, but I want to, to make some points that I think are really important. And the first point being this, that there has become an unhealthy focus, and you're going to have to grab your seat for a second to hear this, because it's going to sound off if you don't think about it. But there has become an unhealthy focus within Christianity upon salvation. There is a focus upon salvation. Of course, God wants to save his people. The name Jesus, remember, he said you will, uh, the angel said you will call his name Jesus because of what? He will save his people from their sins. Yah-sus, or Yah-God saves, is, is his name. Of course, this is true. But there has been a catastrophic error, in my opinion, that has appeared because of an obsession with being saved, and that has overtaken the desire to actually follow Jesus. They can seem like those are synonymous, but they absolutely are not. Think about what we do so frequently, especially within um, big conferences, and especially more in your fundamental perspective. We ask people at the end of a message, we can share some, some heart-gripping story, maybe get a few tears in your eyes. Man, I was watching that today, and, and then when I watch that, I've seen that a lot because I know Dad loves that, and um, Happy Goodman talking there, and tears become in my eyes. I don't know if any of you had that, but we can do that and draw upon people's emotions. And then the question goes out, how many of you would like to be saved? This is where we begin with our relationship with God, let's just say. How many of you want to be saved? Or even better yet, we'll hear the question, how many of you want to go to heaven? You might hear the question, how many of you don't want to go to hell? And these things, while they are, let's say, let's say attributes, aspects, or parts of following Jesus, I don't know, I'm not going to say never, but I can scarcely remember a time where I have heard a man get up and preach and say, now, how many of you want to follow Jesus? The unhealthy obsession of the church has become about salvation. And, and we say this, this is not a new message because we preach this often and we, we hear this in different ways, but... Again, I think repetition is the, is the best teacher, and seeing something from a different perspective helps us to understand that at times. Salvation is being offered as the main course, and Jesus is kind of like the optional side salad. That really we're here for salvation, and Jesus is just the ends, the means to the end. He's just... He's just the avenue by which we attain salvation. 
I said months, it may have been back in the old building, it may have been a year ago, that one of the issues that has arisen within us is that we have learned that when we sin, that we go to Jesus, and Jesus deals with our sin, and so we've been conditioned to see Jesus only in relationship to our sin. We sin, we have the blood of Jesus. We sin, we have the blood of Jesus. We sin, we have the blood of Jesus. And we are completely unconditioned to look to Jesus and stop worrying about the sin and worry about following him. And, and I know that sounds weird, but we can, we can take care of all of the issues that we could, we could uh, put together. Let, let's say that I have a certain perspective, which we do, concerning how we should conduct our lives. And I could get you to live in my house and obey my rules and do what I say and whatever the, those, those uh, the structural rules look like, whether we don't drink, which we don't, we don't watch filthy movies, we don't listen to bad things and all, all those things that come along with that. And I can get you to do those things and you can never know Jesus. But if I can get you to Jesus, won't he take care of all the pertinent and important issues? That's really the question. So then the, the, the bigger question comes out then, why do we spend so much time worrying about the side effects that are the result of not knowing Jesus? They're the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. And we're over here trying to get people back alive, but we're really not giving them Jesus, which is life. We've got them on life support machines. We've got them on, on oxygen, and we've got them on uh, uh, you know, heart pumps, if that's what it's needed. And so we're trying to keep alive something, but when we get people to Christ, this is where life is. So rather than focusing on all the things we should not be doing, or all the things we should be doing, what we need to be focusing on is making sure that we are presenting a Jesus that is clear and can be followed. Otherwise, then we are really shooting our own selves in the foot. Everybody say amen. What has developed as a result of this? In, in my perspective, within Christianity over the centuries, I can best describe... I'm going to use two words today. I said dynamic a minute ago, and we'll, we'll get to kind of what I mean by that. But what has developed in Christianity, I can best describe as a static or stationary salvation. This is where, you now somebody come up to me afterwards and say, no, Pastor Rodney, I never thought that before, but just go with me. Because by and large, this is where every one of us has been conditioned to think. To think concerning a salvation which is secure. A salvation which is immovable. A salvation which is stationary. A salvation which is irrevocable. And you say, well, that, that all sounds like eternal security. No, this happens in every denomination. Every denomination has, has a desire to grab a hold of whether they believe that is permanent, this security of salvation. Everybody following what I'm saying? That we all want to feel like we are securely saved. I don't have enough people saying amen. This message just got five minutes longer as a result. So we want this immovable, secure, stationary, irrevocable relationship with God where I can take comfort in the fact that I am, quote unquote, saved. 
And I've heard throughout the years, and I've, I, all, all these things I've probably mentioned at one point or, or another, but I've heard that if you don't know the day that you were saved, then you really weren't saved. Anybody ever heard that through their life? If you don't know the day, the moment, the hour, you would know if you were saved. And so we want this security. Uh, something, something that is secure is something I don't need to worry about. Why do you get a safe deposit box at the bank? Because you're going to put something in there that you don't even want to have to think about. You don't want to have to worry about. And that's really what we desire within Christianity. And within this perspective, denominations, individual churches even, have developed standards or some sense of visible markers in order to determine salvation for individuals. Now, every denomination has different markers. But every denomination has markers. So whether it is that you pray a prayer to be saved. Everybody's heard that. You, how, do, how do I become saved? Jesus never said pray a prayer. The guy comes to him and says, what must I do to, be, to inherit eternal life? And he never one time says pray a prayer. You notice that? Not even once. The sinner's prayer is a farce. It's made up. It's contrived. There's, there's literally no record of a sinner's prayer. When they come to Peter and say their, their hearts are gashed and they say, what must I do to be saved? He never says say a prayer. They go to Paul and they say, what must we do to be saved? We hear your gospel. What should we do to be saved? He never said pray. That pastor was talking about prayer. Prayer is the, is the uh, fruit, the benefit of having a relationship with God. It's an ability for me to call upon God and for him to speak to me. That's what prayer is. It's the conversation between his children and the father. But this idea of, of, of salvation as a result of prayer, this is a marker. This, is, this has become the, the anthem for the fundamentalist movement. You have some people who, the other, a marker is baptism. The baptism is, is the evidence or the marker that proves that you are saved. Others will say baptism with speaking in tongues. Because you can't be saved without the Spirit of God. Okay, well, I agree with that. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His, the Scripture says. So what's the evidence? It's tongues. Okay, you've got to speak in tongues to be saved. That's a marker. You have others who believe they take that another step further. This is crazy. You want to get all spooked out and not be able to sleep for a couple days? Go watch the snake handlers. Anybody ever watch that garbage? Woo! Man, and what's scary is I grew up, looked just like that. We just didn't have the box of snakes. I mean, that stuff is spooky, but they literally believe the result of, hey, this is a marker of salvation. Those who are my disciples will take up serpents and they will, they have a bottle of strychnine on the pulpit because they will not, they will drink deadly things and it will not hurt them. Literally start sipping down the strychnine markers of salvation. And then the further expansion of this goes into all of these things with specific dress codes and specific features. And, and you can go a lot of directions with this. But it is these external markers which we can see that are used to positively determine salvation in individuals. This is how we can look at you and say, you are saved. How could I possibly tell whether you are saved or not? Because really, it's not about saved. We're, we, what we need to do is we need to be born again. I don't need God to come in and save my old mess. My old mess is a mess. And I don't need him to save it. In fact, he says, unless the kernel falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bring... So this thing is not about me making it. This thing is about me dying and there's a new birth and the result of that new birth is salvation. From what? 
the old man, the sin that was killing me. So I've got to die one way or the other. I'm going to die as the result of my sin or I'm going to be buried with Christ in baptism and die to my old man and resurrected into new life. Static, stationary salvation is what we want. But is this how God sees salvation? Do you ever think that maybe we should look and just say, how does God see? Whatever term it is that you're, that you're wanting to postulate and, and spend time thinking about. We, we have all of these ideas about different theolo- theological positions. Has anybody ever stepped back? I do. This is weird. I don't know why I do this, but I will step back and, and try to look at it from God's perspective sometimes. I grew up in some wild stuff, and I, and I would get back and kind of look at that and say, is this what, how does God see this? Got a bunch of people doing a bunch of crazy things. We're not even talking about Jesus. And God's like, hey man, this is awesome. That pleases me. I mean, you're running around. You're not, you're not singing praise to me. You're not worshiping me. You're not honoring me. You're not living for me. But man, when you get together with those gods and the Mesopotamian gods, boy, yeah, I, I'm commanded by your worship. And, and I just don't, I don't think God is. So then when we come to the point of salvation, how does God view salvation? Does God believe in people getting saved? Let's think about it for a moment. What are the markers if we believe, now the Greek word being sozo, saved, salvation, which means to be delivered. But if God believes in salvation, then what does that look like? For our lives. How does God see this thing? We know that God has a a rightness about him. I I thought about maybe if we remove the word salvation from this conversation for a minute. Because so much of this this theological stuff comes with these words strike theological position or, or thinking. So we attach to them a lot of thought about what it means to be saved. So if we just remove that and we take salvation to be in right standing with God. Let's just talk about it in that sense for a moment. Everybody okay with that? How does God view right standing? It's not, it certainly it's not about praying a prayer. We, we know that, right? It can't just be that we pray to prayer and all of a sudden we're in right standing with God for now and all time. It can't be that God says, well, you're in right standing with me because you got baptized in my name. That, that can't be it. There's so much. If that was it, that's all we would need. Why have this? We don't don't need any history. We don't need any Old Testament. All we need is somebody to come along and baptize us and we're good. Why all the order? Why all the conduct? Why do this and don't do this? Why is this in here if those things are the only markers? So how does God then see what we call salvation? How can we be in right standing? It is not by our external appearance. 1 Samuel 16. Somebody just read, I think it was... Uh, Rodney was just talking about David, but I think dad might have been here not too long ago. But 1 Samuel 16, God tells Samuel to go down and to anoint him. And he says, listen, I do not look on the outward appearance of men, but I look on the heart. How many believe God's word is true? See, I literally heard a holiness preacher in the UPC movement get up and say, God does look on the outward appearance of man. Now, who are we to challenge the word of God? Why would you do that? Because you have this predisposed position 
to believe that these things are important, all the, all the external markers. But God says, I do not look on the outward appearance of man. God, I'm, I'm not going to get lost here. Just hang on for a second. God sees you in the shower. You're, you're not fooling God by what you wear. Come on, somebody. God's not looking and saying, well, that was close. Because if they had worn that, that is not how God is seeing this. What is God looking at? The heart. Yes, of course, there is absolutely modesty and decency needs to be a part of our life. For certain. But not, not man's modesty and decency. God's modesty and decency in our life. So God does not look at the outward appearance. We'll say, well, Pastor Rodney, that's Old Testament. Well, Jesus says in John chapter 7 in the 24th verse, he says, do not judge by outward appearance, but judge by righteous judgment. So there's a converse. Judging by outward appearance is unrighteousness. Come on, everybody, say amen. To judge by the way things appear on the outside. To look at somebody and say, well, you know, Rodney got a beard and doesn't have a tie. And oh, I don't, well, we couldn't have him preach. That's completely unrighteous judgment. And then also to look at me, because all the years I didn't have a beard and I did have a tie. And to look and say, he, that, that's a man that's a, he's a godly young man. Wow. Why are we judging that? Based upon outward appearance. But righteous judgment does not use external appearance to judge. Obviously, there are markers. We can see very clearly when you go into uh, a shady part of town and you have a, a woman who's wearing practically nothing. She is a prostitute. It's able to be judged by what you see. That is clear. But really, ultimately, the heart is the issue. Paul excoriates the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says, the problem with you is you are judging by outward appearance by the external so it's it's not our outward appearance it's not our race or ethnicity we don't have to be born into a certain family into into nobility or into a pure bloodline we don't have to be hebrews of true jewish bloodline because god says he's not a respecter of persons this was reestablished to Peter in Acts 10 where he says, I perceive that God is not a respecter of persons, but to all men and to all nations. The promise even by Jesus is that in, in uh, Jerusalem and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world, this gospel is going to everybody. It's all over the Old Testament too. The prophets prophesy, I've come to you, you wouldn't listen, and I'm going to go to a people who are not a people, and I'm going to call them a people. So it, it, it's not by what we look like on the outside. It's not by our race or ethnicity. So if salvation is not judged by what we see or our nationality, then how is God determining salvation? Maybe the better question is, does God look at us at all and say, think about this. Think about how silly sometimes we sound. Does God look at us and say, they're saved? Is that terminology that we even believe God uses? God looks at Carrie and says, Carrie's saved. God's not concerned with being saved. God is looking at the heart that is following after him. This is the perspective of our Lord. So I think it would help us if we understand salvation and look at it for just a minute 
not as a static position which is sedentary. Static meaning it does not move. It, it stays put. But as a dynamic position which is one of motion. Paul describes to the Roman church, he says that your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. If there is something that is sedentary about salvation, something that is stationary, and I have it, then I couldn't be any nearer it than what I am presently. Everybody following my logic? This speaks clearly of a motion towards something that is the end result, salvation. The deliverance of this body, this this soul, this spirit from the wicked flesh that tries to overcome it daily. That ultimately is the result of our lives. That we will one day take off this mortality and put on immortality, which we call long-term salvation. But there also is a instantaneous or a present salvation it's a deliverance in this life because we don't just hope for the afterlife we don't just hope for heaven we don't just hope for mansions which again we wouldn't even have time to go there but we don't just hope for heaven we hope for deliverance in this life We hope that Jesus will come along and set us free from the bondage that has shackled us, from the mindsets that have bound us, from all of the things that have kept us bound to our desires and our sin and our flesh. And we believe in that present salvation too, amen? So then Paul says it's nearer. Jesus comes along and says, come to me. Speaking of motion. Everybody say motion. There is a motion involved in salvation. In fact, when you start looking at the Greek text, you will find often when speaking of, of uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, oftentimes that type of verbiage, and maybe not every verse, but most of the time it is the Greek word ice, which is not just to believe in him, but to believe in to him. When I say into, it means something different than in. If, if I say you're in the church or if I say you're going into the church, there is a difference because one is sedentary and one is motion. So this word that accompanies this idea of salvation, this idea of following Jesus, of being a disciple, it is accompanied with this thought process of Ice or into a motion toward. I remember Brother Della Vega used to talk about that all the time. He would say that ice means not just a moving, but a motion toward, into, and then you get into dia, through. So this continual motion. And then he says in order to be his disciple, we must follow him. If any man desires to come after me, come after me. What, what is that talking about? Motion, does that sound static? No, it's dynamic. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Can I follow someone standing still? Can I follow someone from a position that is not fluid and moving? Absolutely not. I want to read this one because it just really really brings my point out, I think, and that's in Hebrews chapter 10. 
in verse 38, and it says, Now the just shall live by faith. This word, not by, ice, into, motion to word. It's showing this action involved in this thing. The just shall live by faith. But listen, look at this. But if any man draw back, what is drawing back? Motion. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe, here it is, I'm sorry, this is where it's into. I don't know if it's in a, the just shall live by. I don't know that, which one that is. I have to look it up. But those who believe to the salvation of the soul or the saving of the soul, this word is ice. It is motion to word, moving to word salvation, moving to word Christ. So then you say, well, how does all this tie in with Genesis chapter 2? In Genesis chapter 3. Well, we see a really descriptive picture here in Genesis 2. Adam and his wife are one. They are naked. They are not ashamed because their minds have not been exposed to sin. They have only walked in the obedience of God. They have done what he has said. Their knowledge has been given to them by God. I've talked about this in the past. To imagine to wake up and, and out of a, into existence and have no understanding of disobedience. To have no sin nature. To have nothing to cloud your mind. To be able to hear in clarity what God says. And as you look around the world, God speaks into your heart what is and what is not. What is true just begins to pour into you. There's nothing to convolute it, to confuse it. This is the state Adam and Eve were birthed into. They came into. And they have... They are naked and they are not ashamed because there is no, there's no way for them to even ascribe shame. Because they are seeing this, think about it for a moment, they are seeing this as God sees it. Why? Because their understanding is God's understanding. Now, this idea that we, we I heard this one time, in fact, uh, Chris and I, I think Dustin might have been at that point, we were going to some Bible study with some, when we were young, I was not married yet, and Chris and I, and we were going to this Bible study, and, and I remember the Bethel kids all got together, and they went up, and they were going up to the hot springs, and, and um, getting together, and, and the mark of perfection, the mark of maturity for their lives, Christian maturity, was that they were able to sit around naked, and it didn't bother them. You know, they're kind of taken out of this thought. The problem is, you have a sin nature, and you can't be like God. Adam and Eve were born without that, so to them there was no ability to process that. They didn't. You will not get there with Christian maturity. Everybody say amen. This idea, so, so this goes a lot further. I've, I've seen this happen a lot of times. People who think they're really holy. People who think they are really hot stuff. They got all, got all figured out. Feel it okay for them to watch filthy things on television, filthy things in movies. Watch things where there's, a, there's sexual innuendo or Full out nudity. And they think, well, I'm mature. Has anybody ever heard somebody say that? That's the mark of sin in your life. To not be ashamed. This no longer exists. Everybody say amen. To be naked and to not be ashamed no longer exists. Well, in America, it's coming back. Because there's a lot of nakedness and nobody seems to be ashamed of it. I would be, I'm ashamed for them a lot of times. But this doesn't exist. So the mark of maturity in our life is not that we, oh, we have no problem with, with uh, looking at the immoral behavior. Oh, absolutely, you should. 
if you're a godly person, you should. So Adam and Eve were not, they were not ashamed because they did not have sin nature. This is why this happened. So they walk with God. They are right with God. They commune with God daily. Apparently, in the cool of the evening, now dad has mentioned this at times in the past, and I'm not going to go there, but you could even say this in the spirit. Because it says it's, it's in the breeze, but the breeze is the same word that is spirit. The same where we get Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Same concept in the old here. They walked with them in the spirit. Now that could very well be what's being implied. But they are present with God. Genesis 3, there's a shift. They disobey God and they try to cover their sin in two ways. The first, they make clothes to cover their nakedness. I'm going to step out on a limb here. You cannot get enough clothes on to cover the nakedness of your heart. A lot of people are worried about getting the right things on. You cannot get enough clothes on to cover the sinful nature of your life. You can put the burqa on. To where all you can see is your eyeballs. And there's literally no shape or form to even be hardly be recognized. You can never cover it. It never does enough. So they, they sew for themselves clothes, fig leaves to try to cover their, their sinfulness. And the second thing is they hide from the presence of God. So from, from my perspective then, judging things by the outward appearance. I'm just going to judge this outwardly. Adam and Eve were in a better place when they were not naked, but covered. That's my fleshly perspective. Adam and Eve are in a better place when they're not naked, right? I mean, the fact that they're naked, that's wrong. So the fact that they're covered, this must be right. But this is the problem with judging things externally. is because God doesn't see it that way. I see it that way. I'm trying to make this point. We look and see that the more covering... Now listen, I'm not promoting, you know, nudity here. That's not the point. We see that the more covering, the more godly. The better the position. But God is not looking at the covering. God's looking at the heart. And when they sinned, by my perspective... What kind of a person would walk in these doors full of sin and, and, and dare to walk in that back door and come in down in here and, and act like they have a right to stand before God? So from the external perspective, Adam and Eve would have, that was the right thing to do. They sinned, they covered themselves all up, and they hid from God like they should do. It's external judgment. They should have hid from God. This is where we think. But God looks at all of this and says, no, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. What does God want us to do? Does God want us to cover our sin? Think about this for a moment. Does God want us to cover our sin? Does God want us to hide when we have sinned? Yet in the church, there's such an oppression to word this that if somebody does happen to make a mistake, what's the first thing? They, they, I can't go to church. Why? Everybody there is going to judge me. And you know what the truth is? A lot of times that's, that's the case. A lot of times that's the case. 
Because we're looking at all of the external. And we can look and we can see all the good stuff and all these different people. And you dare walk in those doors with sin in your life. But the reality is, instead of running from God, God wants a heart that will come to Him. He never said, hey, you've got sin, you cannot come to me. But this is all coming with this idea that God forgets sin anyway. Well, well, God cannot look upon sin. Well, certainly He can look upon sin. He looked at you. Well, God didn't look at Jesus on the cross because He could not look at... Baloney! He went looking for Adam and Eve. God's looked at sin for all mankind. God is not afraid of your sin. God is interested in your heart. And so if you find yourself in an off condition, you find yourself in a way where there is some shame in your life as a result of how you have lived... The answer for you is not to hide. It's not to run. It's not to cover. It's to come exposed to the Lord. Not naked. Exposed in my heart. Not covering. No pretense. No no coming up and acting as though I've got everything figured out here. But just coming to the Lord in simplicity and saying, Jesus, I, I come before you and I'm not worthy. Just like the two men who are praying and the one smites his chest and says, I'm thankful I'm not like him. And the other says, oh Lord... I'm a sinner. I have no business to stand before you. And Jesus says, who is received? Not the outward. Not the outward. Now, there are two things to consider from the perspective of motion. Genesis 2, their their position can be described as moving toward or with God. Genesis 3 their position can be described as moving away from God. I'm going to borrow an example for you that really has been sticking out in my mind for the last several weeks from a a man named Frank Stagg, who dad has read sometimes a few little quotes from a book, but this, this really ministered to my heart. He made this example. If you were to walk into a hospital room, Now, in his day, it was more of a, we call it a sick ward. But now you go into a hospital room, most times you'll see two beds in that room and a curtain dividing, and that's what most of the time I see. And if you were to walk in that room and pull back the curtain, and you have two beds laying there, and in those two beds you find two men. And these men that are laying in these beds have no physical apparent differences. Let's just assume that they share a temperature of 100 degrees. They both have the same coloring. They both have the same strength. If I were to walk into the room with these two men and I looked upon them, I would say that they are both in the same condition. But a doctor could come into this room and he can tell the difference that one man is dying and the other is coming back to life. One man's temperature is rising. The other's temperature is coming down. One man, they share the same strength, but one man is getting stronger. The other man is getting weaker. And I begin to think about this in my own life because... I have been serving the Lord for a lot of years now. And we have young Christians who come along. They, they, they dedicate their lives to the Lord. And i got to ask you this question. Are, are you perfect? Were you perfected when you came to Christ? Or did it take some time for God to work some things out in you? So let me just paint you a picture. 
You have a young Christian who comes along and, and he's, he's intent and he's sincere. Let's just let's deal with the sincerity of, of intending to move toward the Lord. And this young man is struggling maybe with a, a cigarette addiction that he cannot overcome. Or maybe he's so young in the Lord that he's not sure about alcohol. And maybe he's still tipping a beer every now and again. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm making no, don't, you got to follow through my logic. Don't lose me here. Everybody okay? Can that young man be on a motion toward Christ? Okay. Now me, 28 years now preaching the gospel. You walk in and see me tipping back just a few beers every now and again. And you watch me struggling with things that I had conquered. We're both in the same condition. But one of us would be moving toward Christ. And the other would be moving away. So, we develop two camps. The camp over here says, hey, listen, if baby Christians can still drink and smoke and be on their way toward the Lord, then everybody can be on their way toward the Lord. doesn't matter what you do. That, that's the one camp. The other camp is, when you walk into the church, you better have everything figured out. And you better dress right, and you better look right, and you better talk right, you better never swear again. If you swear again, you got to get rebaptized. When really, we need to erase all of that. And we need to say, Lord, the judgment of this, what you are concerned with, is not the static position that we are in, but the motion with which our lives are directed. That God is looking at your heart today, and he's not looking at the, the external things that are going on around you. And sometimes we, we've, so many of us, I mean, most of us have known each other for a lot of years. And we, we got the external, we all look pretty good. Some of you better than others, you know. But we got the external stuff down. And it's so easy for us to hide behind that. And to feel like, well, I've got, I've got it kind of all figured out here and my, my doctrine's right and my, you know, I, I'm, I'm a part of the church and so everything's all good. But in reality, God is not looking at this. Now listen, at the same time, I don't believe for a second that God is looking to kick you out of his kingdom. Scripture says God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to... What is Repentance. Turning around, changing your mind. You thought one way and it was taking you the wrong direction. But now you see it differently and you turn and you run to Jesus. This is what the Lord is interested in. And again, we all know, you all understand. I understand you're not mistaken what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we walk in some sort of immorality that we loosen the standards by which we live our lives because it really doesn't matter it does matter those things reflect the heart condition the point is not that we can live however we want drink whatever we want go wherever we want do whatever we want no 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 that's not the point the point is we cannot judge that just because these things are present that somebody is right we have to say 
that God is then judging this. How is it that God sees this? And, I, and I'm, I'm closing. One is dying. One is recovering. To God, the difference is not the condition, but the direction of the men. This is where God's heart on the matter is. So it is with salvation. We can look at two people and we can see them, uh, you know, that they are in right standing. They look right. They dress right. Their vital signs are the same. They attend services. They sing. They appear to be walking in salvation. But in reality, one has heard the call of grace and has set his course toward Jesus, allowing Jesus to remove his, his old burdens, his old habits, his old sins. The other has taken to rejecting the call of the Lord and has begun to walk away and pick up old weights and sins that easily beset us. What does beset mean? You stopped moving. You got tired. You stopped this course. Being lost then is not a certain stage of bondage or corruption. But it is the moving in the wrong direction. So salvation is not the static matter of a certain condition or state. But a new direction toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Jesus our Lord. This is what the Lord is looking at in our lives. I hope that today... You can think about these things and maybe this week. Think about the examples of the two men. I've been thinking about it for weeks. My motion toward God. Not my specific conduct, which should be right and good and all of those things. But my motion toward the Lord. Amen. Pastor, why don't you come?